a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. It is Tuesday, 26th of January. I'm going to mention this a couple of times. Happy birthday to my sister, Julie. I don't know if she even listens, but if she does, I I would uh, feel really honored that she heard me wish her a happy birthday. I'm joined by Eric Peters from Eric Peters Autos. Hello, Eric. Hey, Brian, how's it going, my fellow wrong thinker? Well, it's been almost a week of the new yep. day in America, and so far, um, you know, vital signs are steady. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm still doing okay. How about you? Oh, think, things are getting better all of a sudden. All of a sudden, we don't need to have all these restrictions in place to stop the spread. Isn't it a curious thing? You've, you've noticed, too, that suddenly uh, the obvious is being acknowledged and some of these restrictions are being lifted. And you mentioned before we went on the air, one of the ho- most hardcore lockdowners, Gavin Newsom, is actually dialing things back. What do you suppose is behind this? Well, they've stopped the spread of the orange man. Ah, (laughs) of course, (laughs) of course. And, you know, I'm so disappointed with the orange man, chiefly because he did almost nothing to stop the weaponization of hypochondria that destroyed his presidency and, frankly, is destroying America. For months and months and months, he stood there like a wooden Indian while Pope Fauci the 18th Uh, terrified the populace with tales of the virus. And I just can't forgive him for that. It's undone every bit of good the man did, and it set the stage for worse to come. Well, um, can can we at least revel for a moment in the idea that at least some people are starting to return to sanity and some of the lockdown things uh, are being uh, lifted? Uh, I I did notice, however, though, that I think it may have been Fauci who said something about, well, if wearing one mask is good, two masks is even better. Did I really see that? Mitt Romney has begun. Mitt Mitt Romney and a number of others have very publicly been performing that bit of kabuki. Mm. Um, But uh, in, in some ways it's gotten better. In some ways it's getting worse. You and I began to talk briefly off the air about the proposal that's been floated by a Republican that the corona stimulus checks uh mark two the next one that's supposed to come out for 1400 bucks um may be tied to you're getting the holy jab yeah didn't see that coming did we wow Mm -hmm. no what an incentive well and the thing that worries me about that is that it will not be restricted to merely getting the pathetic 1400 dollar alms that the government is going to throw out to people um for having destroyed their ability to earn a living that that's going to scale, that if they do that and they they get the precedent set for that, you're going to find a lot of other things are going to be restricted uh, based on whether you've got the holy jab. number of airlines, for example, have already said that they're not going to let people on without some kind of a vaccination passport. And I foresee that a lot of corporate employers who already enforce the diapering, wearing of the holy face burqa, are going to do the same with the holy jab. They will say that it's a condition of your future employment, Uh, that you submit to being needled. And once that happens, you'll be subjected to other needlings because it's like taxes. Once you accept one tax, you've agreed to all taxes in the future and the principle that if they can take a cent of your money, ultimately they can take every last penny you've got. 
it's this is really a, a tough subject for me because um, my wife is not to, she she wasn't supportive of the idea of having to take the vaccine. She's a public school teacher, mm-hmm. and so she is among mm-hmm. you know the first in line uh, to to receive the vaccine. But she was like, I'm not convinced that it's totally safe. Now she went ahead and got her first uh, round of the vaccine uh, a couple of days ago, and the reason she did it is purely because. She really wants to see our daughter who lives in Germany. And if the opportunity mm-hmm. comes to, to travel maybe later this year, um, she's, you know, she's convinced that it's going gonna, it's gonna to require sure. that vaccination. So it's the desire to see family that, that ultimately triumphed over you know, the desire to keep something that's questionable you know, out of her, her body. But what a crazy corner to be backed into. Well, it's a it's a, it's a particularly vicious one, and it's a policy that was perfected by a guy named Reinhard Heydrich. I don't know if you uh, remember who he was, but he was Hitler's Reich protector of Bohemia and Moravia, that is, occupied Czechoslovakia uh, during the war. And he was an extraordinarily effective man, because rather than simply brutalize people, he employed the carrot and the stick. He would dangle some reward in front of the occupied Czechs, and if they snapped at the carrot, they were rewarded, whereas if they didn't, snap at the carrot, they were punished. And because of that, he was able to pacify that entire region of the country, and he was so effective that the British SOE sent in a couple of guys to take him out because he was seen as somebody who actually was competent in terms of making the the Nazi government work well, and they were worried that he might actually take over for Hitler. And that lesson has been learned very well, I think, by the powers that be, and that's the way they're doing this now. They're not passing laws per se. They're just passing these mandates and regulations that hey, you don't have to do this, but if you want to do this, yep, then you kind of have to follow our policies. Yeah, it only makes me wonder, you know, where will it ratchet up to next? In other words, what, what else will be conditional upon your obedience mm-hmm. to us? Well, one example that, that pops to my mind, and I'm concerned about this because I'm facing this in about two years, I guess, is that uh, renewing your driver's license will require you to not only wear the holy burqa in order to get into the DMV and do their paperwork, but also that they'll require you to get the holy jab, without which you can't get a driver's license or a government ID. And if you haven't got a government ID, it's very hard to do business. It's very difficult to open up a bank account, for example, to cash oh, yeah. checks. Uh, what if you're a business owner? They may make your your business license conditional on you receiving the holy jab, and that uh, the people who work for you be required to get the holy jab as well. And they'll do what they've been doing already with the holy face burqa, and they'll frame it, in the context of this is a matter of public health, and you don't want to kill Granny, do you? Uh, I, I think you're right. I think this it's it's feasible that it, that it could happen. Is there is there any reason to to uh, to feel some gratitude though to see uh, the reality finally dawning on some people that look? Uh, I think even President Biden said it to this last week. Nothing we do is going to affect the trajectory of this virus. Hello. <laughs> That's yeah. kind of what, what people have been saying for, for a while here as we systematically destroyed everybody's livelihood. I know. Well, the thing, I, I'm, I go back and forth on this yin and yang. I've got reason for optimism, and then I'm sometimes very depressed by the degree to which people are now hypochondriized, if that's even a word. The way they have managed to instill such fear in so many people that they're, they're literally hysterical now and will do practically anything if they think it's going to protect them against uh, the dread virus that, that doesn't kill 99.8% something of the population. 
But there are still some islands of sanity. And you, you mentioned to me that, for instance, uh, your gym does not, yep. does not require the, the face mask. Well, not yet, and I'm wondering how this is going to go. And the reason that it doesn't is because it's a specific clientele. You know, you've got a lot of people who are very athletic and, and like to hit the weights, and they uh, are probably uh, a, a cohort of people who, more than other people, recognize that this is a farce and that their risk is essentially nil, which is factually correct. And more to the point, they will not put up with being, uh, being told that they have to put on this ridiculous apparatus over their face which, if you work out hard, I work out hard, uh, leaving aside the degradation of it, makes working out very difficult. You gasp for breath when you can't breathe and you're trying to do something, and they just won't put up with it, and they'll quit. I'll quit. I know a number of people at my gym will quit and say, you know what, I'm canceling my membership and good riddance, and we hope you go out of business, and we'll go ahead and figure it out on our own. We'll, we'll form a gym on our own if we need to. It makes me wonder, too, how much longer the mask mandates are, are going to continue, like at the, the grocery stores, Costco, et cetera, because that, that seems to be the epicenter of, of where yeah. uh, mask wearing is, is most strictly enforced and most seriously looked down upon if, if you're not wearing one. Well, the sad thing, I don't know how it is in your part of the world, but in my part of the world, the mandates are not being enforced. There's a sign on the door at the supermarket that says, local ordinance requires masks. But they don't accost you. They don't bother you. Uh, it's entirely voluntary. And yet, uh, I find that whenever I go shopping, I'm one of maybe three people in the entire store that isn't wearing the holy face burqa. So people are voluntarily complying with this, and that, that, that's what depresses me. Interesting. Well, I'm hoping for some positive movement uh, in, in one direction, but at the same time, there's a lot of power grabbing going on right now. Sure. In fact, uh, we're, we're about 30 seconds from the break here, but um, Eric, your, your thoughts uh, this last week, President Biden was mm -hmm. a very busy man. Any, any particular yep. thoughts of, of where his, his action was focused that give you concern? Well, clearly he's, he's been attacking the domestic energy um, industry. He, he rescinded or he canceled the Orange Man's Keystone Pipeline approval. And the other thing that's, that he's done is to reverse what the Orange Man had done with regard to California, and I put it in air quotes, emissions standards. Um, Trump wanted them to not apply to the rest of the country, um, and so told California they can't do that, and Biden has made it clear he wants to let Gavin Newsom decree uh, effectively emissions standards for the entire country, which is going to have profound and dramatic effects on the kinds of cars we've got available. And we can talk about that after the break. Okay, we'll take a quick break. Eric Peters is my guest. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from Eric Peters Autos is my guest. You really should check out his website. Eric, you're cranking out great content, thought-provoking articles, a lot of good information, too, for people who are into uh, automobiles and, 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 and really neat cars and even, uh, you know, some, some great... Uh, some great prognostication about what to expect of what's coming. I noticed you had, had talked about some, some really interesting incentives that you see approaching because right. it's a new day in America with a, with a new uh, administration. What do you see on the horizon? Well, we can see what's on the horizon because of what's already 
past Joe Biden's desk. We talked a little bit about that before the break, about the cancellation of the Keystone Pipeline, which is going to make energy more expensive uh, because it will be less abundant. And we also know that um, Biden's appointment to head the DOT, the Department of Transportation, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, uh, has already floated the idea of adding to the already regressive tax on motor fuels, which is about 25 percent a tax on every gallon of gas that you pay. Wow. And I foresee they're really going to kick this up because what they're also doing at the same time is essentially making the car industry uh, stop making cars that aren't electric cars. You've been following the stock market, I assume, and note the GM and Ford, all of a sudden after the inauguration, the value of their stock has gone up. And the reason for that is because of all these electric car mandates that are now in the pipeline. And so, of course, GM and Ford have committed, like a lot of car companies, to making more of these electric cars. And now the government is going to basically force the American people to buy them, or at least make it so that they can't buy anything that isn't electric that's new. And that gets us to where we're, we're headed in this conversation, which is, how is the government going to get people out of the cars they already have that they probably don't want to get rid of and into the electric cars of the future? And I think they're going to do that via gas taxes. I think they're going to do that by heightened registration fees and other forms of making non-electric cars more expensive and specifically making them as expensive as a new electric car so as to get rid of uh, any economic incentive to cling to whatever car you currently have. Dang. Well, you know, there's there's a part of me that... Uh, I, I really I I know a couple of people who have, have purchased Teslas and I got to tell you they're they're really they're amazing cars but because of, of my so is a Porsche 911 right I mean because of my conversation with you though I can't help but think of okay but there are shortcomings here you know the range and yeah. the cost and and so forth but the the I guess more than anything it would be fun to get one if you had lots of options it becomes less mm-hmm. fun as your options become narrower does that make sense absolutely it does. And it's not very fun when you're looking at spending $35,000, which is the least expensive electric car on the market, the Nissan Leaf or the Chevy Bolt. They're about $35,000, um, as opposed to spending about 15000 bucks for an equivalent non-electric car. So basically, the cost of, uh, of a basic transportation appliance is going to double if we're forced to buy nothing but electric cars. What is this going to do for SUVs and, and pickup trucks? Well, it's going to do what it's already done for them in Europe. You've been to Europe, and I'm sure you were uh, struck by how rare it was to see a big truck or an SUV in Europe. And the reason for that is because it's extraordinarily expensive to buy and feed one of those things in Europe. Gas costs, what, about 8 bucks a gallon, I think, in Germany? Something crazy like that because of taxes. And they have all these regulations on the books that have made it virtually impossible to sell a vehicle like that Uh, unless it's sold for an exorbitant price. The reason we have so many large SUVs and pickups in this country is because they're relatively affordable. They don't, you know, there's something that an average guy can buy and an average guy can feed because gas is, what, $2.30 a gallon or something like that. But what happens when gas is 5 bucks a gallon and buying a pickup truck costs you $60,000? Well, you're not going to find many people buying them anymore, and they're going to become the toys of the very affluent. Well, and I, I had uh, somebody who was just looking in the used pickup market just last week. And, and I mean, his hair turned white <laughs> he yeah. was, when he saw the prices. He was like, I can't believe used trucks. He goes, there are people who are turning around and selling a truck they bought three or four years ago for more than they paid for it. 
Yeah, you know what? If you have a truck right now, hold on to it. It's better than buying gold, frankly, and that's not an exaggeration. Um, I'm, I'm astonished by how much my truck is worth, and my truck's almost 20 years old, and I could sell it today for almost two-thirds what I paid for it uh, 12 years ago. Amazing. Well, I guess, uh, you know, there are steps we can take. I know you have advocated, you know, the mm-hmm. the thing to do is make sure you've got a reliable vehicle. It's okay to drive a used vehicle. Yep. But, uh, you know, I just, I wish there was a way to separate, you know, separate church and state. Let's separate government and auto manufacturers and, and see what happens, see if, if cars become affordable again. Well, I harp on that a lot. You know, I ask people when the discussion comes up, uh, how it happened, how it came to pass that the government got involved in decreeing vehicle design, and specifically things like safety and, and gas mileage, which are a matter of the, the individual's own choices because the individual is paying for that. There's no, there's no negative effect on others. I can, I can see the argument for um, legitimate emissions controls, and I'm not talking about carbon dioxide now, though that's been manipulated and turned into an emission. I'm talking about the stuff that fouls the air and causes breathing difficulties. You can make a reasonable argument for limiting those within reason. But I don't understand how you make a case that the government can decree that if you or I want to go out and buy a pickup truck with our own money that gets 25 miles per gallon and we pay for the gas that we put in it, that that somehow should be uh, punished and we should be forced to pay $35,000 for an electric car instead. It makes no sense to me on a moral level. No, I'm, I'm with you. Well, I'm very de- dedicated, and I know you are too. I, I'm going to claim, I'm going to use, and I'm going to defend my liberty every place that I possibly can. Um, no, it won't be perfect, but uh, but I'm still going to try and seize as much of it as possible in spite of uh, the way things seem to be headed. I'm going to do the same, and I think it's important that we make our case rationally and civilly to people, and if they're not willing to listen to us, well, that's on them, but then it's on us to, to practice what we preach and, and to set an example for other people, and just to do our best to say no to this insanity. I'm with you there. Eric, one final uh, question for you, and mm-hmm. I, I don't want to rub salt in anybody's wounds when I ask this, but uh, I know that uh, you have seen some of the, uh, the, the hangers-on, the true believers, you know, Trump, yeah. is, Trump and QAnon, they're, just wait, yeah. this is 4D chess, and you're going to be surprised, the arrests are going to begin any day, and mm-hmm. Trump will be president again. Um, I, I don't even know what to, to say to the folks who, who are, are still clinging to this hope. Well, nor do I, and, and I find it kind of troubling because what's happening is that people who supported Trump for one reason or another for legitimate reasons and who are, you know, I think reasonably normal people like you and I are now being kind of um, bundled with these people who literally are, t- in my opinion, wearing the tinfoil hat and, and, and postulating these bizarre scenarios and theories and we're being made to look ridiculous, and that is serving to delegitimize opposition to this leftist steamroller um, that is crunching the country underfoot. And that, that troubles me. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a journalist, and more importantly, I like to think I'm, I'm reasonably bright, and so I like to stick to facts and things I know and not to just buy into wild speculations. Um, the, the great astronomer Carl Sagan was once asked whether he believed in UFOs. And his response was, extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. And that's my position on this whole thing with Trump somehow uh, descending from the heavens on a winged chariot for a second term. You can say that if you all you'd like to, but until you've got something to support it, I, I put it right out there with the UFOs.
Okay. Eric, we've got 30 seconds here. Tell everybody about your website and where to find it. Sure. It's epautos.com, the web's best libertarian gearhead site. And also you can find me now on Rumble, which I have transitioned over to after having been uh, had a couple of my videos scrubbed from YouTube, so I will never do business with them again. And I'm also over at Gab, um, and I'm, try- I'm encouraging everybody who is a current Facebook or Twitter user to make that move as well. Okay, because of you, I have signed up for Gab, but I still need to, uh, there's still a few things I need to attend to mm-hmm. over there. So uh, duly noted, I'll check you out on Rumble. Eric, thanks as always for making some time to be with us this week. Good, O'Brien. Thank you very much. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Once again, a thank you to our sponsors, including Alta Bank, Landmark Risk Management and Insurance, and also Monticello College. So I know that uh, there's a lot of talk right now about, uh, well, you know, the uh, Biden administration is uh, going to be pushing gun control. And it, like they talked about this, uh, you know, during the election cycle. Um, I personally, just if I could just be very blunt, I think it's a moot point. And, and it's not because, you know, the, the gun owners of America are ready to rise up en masse and defy the government. It's, but uh, I, I have to say for however many tens of millions of firearms found their way into private hands for the first time this last year. That's a pretty solid indicator that uh, the cow left the barn a long time ago. Now, having said that, I don't think that uh, I don't think there's enough humility or uh, attachment to reality on the part of most within the political class. I think they kind of live in a little rarefied atmosphere of their own where, you know, what we say happens. Make it so. So let it be written, so let it be done. I mean, they mistake themselves for Pharaoh or some demigod of some kind. Anyway, Thomas, uh, not Thomas, Robert E. Wright. Sorry, Robert, didn't mean to get your name wrong here, but uh, Robert E. Wright has a very thought-provoking essay titled, Why You Should Support the Second Amendment Even If You Don't Like Guns. And I don't know how many people within the sound of my voice are like, oh, yeah, I really don't care for it. You know, I kind of wish we could, you know, get rid of gun ownership. I think this is a pretty reasoned uh, argument for why it's in the benefit of society and it's in, in, in society's uh, favor to maintain that natural right to self-defense rather than try to regulate it or otherwise, you know, control it out of existence. <clears throat> Robert Wright says Joe Biden has again threatened to defeat the NRA and pass blatantly unconstitutional gun regulations. And he says, even if you don't hunt and are willing, despite the events of summer of 2020, to entrust the lives of your loved ones to law enforcement, you should still oppose gun control. Why? Well, he says the same illogic used to justify gun laws was used to justify the lockdowns that locked up you and your family and wrecked your business or job, or at the very least destroyed your favorite small business haunts. 
He says Americans need to oppose specific bad policies, but also the patterns of thought that make them possible. Specifically, Americans need to make clear to policymakers that the misdeeds of a few do not justify the punishment of all. Amen, bro. He says the illogical train of thought runs like this. Only X does bad thing Y. So all X needs is to be punished to prevent Y. So we hear arguments like, well, only gun owners commit gun crime, so punish all gun owners, there will be no more shootings. Only commoners spread COVID, so punish all commoners while the elites play all day and night, and COVID will go away. Only sinners sin, so punish all sinners, and sin will disappear. He says the same twisted logic could be employed on anyone, for anything, at any time. That sort of logic used to earn first-year college students a solid F, But because universities have used dirty pool tactics to denude themselves of their best professors, such reasoning is now passed and even applauded. Every day, community looks less like a comedy about fictional Greendale Community College and more like a documentary about about U.S. higher education. Now, thankfully, he says the mob that attacked the Capitol was almost completely unarmed. Only a handful of firearms were recovered, and he says, I haven't found any reports of the rioters brandishing guns, much less firing any. Now, apparently there were Molotov, more Molotov cocktails and pipe bombs about than firearms, likely because D.C.'s strict and unconstitutional gun laws made explosives more attractive alternatives. Thankfully, nobody yet wants to more fully regulate distilled liquors, rags, matchheads, or plumbers, or ban Class C motorhomes, the assault rifle of bombers. Nashville on Christmas, remember? <laughs> Other states like Massachusetts and New Jersey also greatly restrict gun ownership and carry. What is gained from locking down law-abiding gun owners? About as much as is gained from quarantining people who aren't sick. Evidence comes from the same quarter, too. For decades, South Dakota was a permissive, shall-issue state when it came to pistol permits. He says a few years ago, after people like me kept asking why any permit at all was necessary, the state adopted constitutional carry which allows anyone to carry pistols and or long guns concealed and or openly in public spaces without a permit. Now, constitutional carry has not turned South Dakota into the Hollywood version of the Wild West. In fact, firearm murders in the state are relatively rare. The state ranks fifth best in the country, according to this study, and he has a link to it. With much lower gun homicide rates per capita than either Massachusetts or New Jersey. Now, he says that's remarkable, considering that South Dakota is home to six of the 50 poorest countries, in other words, the biggest Indian reservations in the country. And according to Rand, ranked ninth in the country in per capita gun ownership between 1980 and 2016. Now, he says, note the parallel to COVID lockdowns. In both cases, the eastern states push authoritarian, unconstitutional policies that don't even do what they purport to do. And why should they, as they are based on the base illogical moralism laid bare above? Some citizens fulminate and a few sue, but mostly they just obey or see the writing on the wall, turn on their neighbors and become unpaid tools of their oppressive states. South Dakota, by contrast, while far from perfect, sticks much more closely to the constitutional baseline that ensured America's prosperity and its once well-deserved reputation as a beacon of freedom. 
Adherence to the hoary lodestone of the Republic has rendered the state's economy and society resilient in the face of shocks. Its well-armed citizenry deploy reluctantly but steadfastly when threatened with violence, as they did over the Memorial Day weekend when Antifa types tried to foment a riot in Sioux Falls. Now, he says a friend that successfully protected his fast food restaurant after a local law enforcement officer encouraged him to use his Tokarev, Soviet-made military pistol that shoots rifle-like rounds that can pierce body armor if necessary. Thankfully, he says, the wannabe looters did not test my friend's resolve or marksmanship. Now, Robert Wright says, while South Dakotans work with law enforcement officers to protect themselves during crises, the mostly disarmed citizens of Massachusetts and New Jersey... They rank dead last and second last, respectively, in the RAND gun ownership study cited above. They must either die, capitulate, or hope local LEOs, law enforcement officers, are on their side when the stinky stuff hits the fan. So even if you don't own a gun, he says you should support your neighbor's right to own them, even military-type ones. When the Second Amendment was ratified, people, businesses, and nonprofit corporations owned military weapons, including cannon. People tend to behave much more civilly toward each other when they are de facto equals. And nothing equalizes an uneven playing field like grape shot, a sniper, or a derringer. That's why the nation's first serious gun laws were put in place after the Civil War by Democratic white supremacists to keep Republican freed slaves from being able to defend themselves from hooded crossburners. You know the ones. He says, Today Americans generally deprecate violence. Most have a lot to lose, but sometimes, in the course of human events, self-defense, self-defense rather becomes necessary, even admirable. Robert Wright says, as he recently pointed out, what one party contends is self-defense, another may consider an unwarranted breach of the peace. Look at the way that Trump supporters responded to the George Floyd protests compared to the overrunning of the Capitol. Intense or widespread violent protest proves one thing. Current leadership is incompetent, and should resign. He says, I don't just mean Trump. I mean any and all politicians implicated in failed lockdowns, police brutality, extended rioting and chop zones, or election irregularities, which he says, by the way, definitely did occur, though the extent is still disputed. After all, only politicians cause bad policies. So all politicians should be punished. See what I did there? (laughs) Seriously, he says, if failed politicians don't exile themselves, others may do it for them. Via recall in Gavin Newsom's case, but perhaps more gruesomely in others, even if all guns magically disappeared tomorrow, nay, especially if all guns magically disappeared tomorrow. I'll have a link to this in the show notes, but uh, but his point is so well taken. And I, you know, okay, I'm going to wet my finger and put it up there and test the wind. I think you're going to see a test of this. And maybe it's something that will extend to you. Maybe you're not a gun owner. Maybe maybe you'll think, well, this really doesn't affect me. I don't have a dog in this fight. But I think that the hubris is uh, is great enough among the political class right now, and this includes members of both parties, that uh, they're going to try to pass some kind of restrictive gun control legislation. And my prediction is that a majority of people who own guns are going to put their foot down and say no. Then what? You know, people who have something to lose aren't going to be, you know, they're not going to resort to violence. But I wonder if the political class will force the issue or otherwise try to uh, try to assert that, no, really, we are in control. 
I hope we don't have our own Lexington Concord moment, such as happened on April 19th, 1775. But if it happens, I predict it will probably happen over gun control. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I hope you are finding this useful information. And again, there are links, many, many links that you can find in the show notes posted each day at thebrianhydeshow.com. You're looking for the show notes for January 26th. By the way, happy birthday to my little sister, Julie. Happy birthday, sis. All right. I think I've taken care of family obligations now. Uh, Moving on, you know, I was talking in the last segment about uh, why you should be against gun control, even if you don't own a gun. And I guess what I'm calling for here is, well, it's a kind of unity. (laughs) Sorry. It just sounds so funny when I hear myself say it. Actually, I do want to, to just put out there, I don't think unity is a bad thing if it is voluntary. When people come together on a voluntary basis, I think that's uh, that can actually be a wonderful thing. That can be a problem-solving dynamic. But when it's coerced, unity is neither necessary nor desirable. And this is particularly true when it comes to political unity. Thomas L. Knapp, in a piece written for everything, or published on, rather, everythingvoluntary.com, talks about this. And he starts with a quote from uh, President Biden. To restore the soul and to secure the future of America, President Joe Biden said in his inaugural speech, requires more than words. It requires that most elusive of things in a democracy, unity. This is our historic moment of crisis and challenge, and unity is the path forward. Now, Thomas Knapp says, here's the bad news. Where politics is concerned, unity is a pipe dream. The good news is where human flourishing is concerned, the ersatz unity demanded by politicians like Joe Biden is neither necessary nor desirable. He says there's nothing wrong with unity as such. Unity is desirable when it's voluntary, unanimous, and based on shared values and interests. I believe common consent is, is the phrase that comes to mind. Otherwise, people should just do their own things. Nor is politics as we know it about unity as such. It's about ruling, about making sure those who disagree with rulers don't get to do their own things. That produces a unity of sort among those who support the rulers, but it also produces a polarization between those who do and those who don't. Karl von Clausewitz's aphorism, War is the Continuation of Politics by Other Means, is equally applicable in reverse Politics does not bring an end to Hobbes' war of all against all. It merely recruits the fighters into competing armies, waving different flags and wearing different uniforms. Now, Thomas Knapp says such polarization may be ugly, but not as ugly as a prospective poli- political unity. Such unity would look like George Orwell's 1984, a society united under the rule of a single party dedicated to stamping out not only dissent, but the very possibility and concept of dissent. Now, thankfully, that's never happened. Even with millions dead or dying behind barbed wire, the Third Reich's unity was contested by people like Hans and Sophie Scholz. 
Polarization is not the opposite of unity. The two are simply complementary signs of one coin. One both produces and requires the other. To transcend one, he says we must transcend both. And we can by trading them for another coin, the two sides of which are freedom and peace. So how do we get there? I love these two words, de-escalation and decentralization. To the extent that politics is war, and it is, the more things government controls, the more things we have to fight about. And the more things there are to fight about, the more we're going to fight. Every new thing to fight about produces new, internally unified, mutually polarized factions. Now, if we want freedom and peace, we have to reduce the power of government. Anarchists and voluntarists would eliminate that power entirely. And if we have less to fight about, we'll fight less. In addition to reducing the power of government as a whole, spreading that power out through devolution, secession, even panarchism, that's competing governments in overlapping geographies, would allow voluntarily unified groups to live their way without demanding that others do likewise. Less to fight about. Less fighting. The first two have been done many times. The third, he says, is worth a try. What's not worth continued trying is coerced unity under Joe Biden or anyone else. Happen to agree with that. This is one of the reasons why I'm, I'm like, don't, uh, don't politicize things. Everything that gets politicized turns into a fight because it's, it becomes about power. Who will rule over whom? We can do better. Okay, one final thought. And this is, uh, this is from Annie Holmquist from intellectualtakeout.org. Freeing parents from the anxious helicopter lifestyle. I used to laugh about helicopter parents until I realized, no, I am one. Or at least I have been one. My kids are all now mostly grown, but, um, but I, I tended to hover. You know, I tended to think in terms of, you know, what can I do to protect the kids, make them absolutely safe, blah, 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 blah. Listen to Annie Holmquist's take on this. I'm just going to share a couple of excerpts here. She says, I loved Little House on the Prairie when I was little, but she says, as I grew older, my favorite story from this series of novels centered not on Laura Ingalls' childhood, but that of her husband, Alamanzo. She says, the youngest of four children growing up in 19th century New York, Almanzo and his, his siblings rather, were once left home alone while their parents went out of town for a week on a farm. Nothing like throwing one's children into responsibility and adulting all at once, is there? Now she says, hilarity ensues when the children are anything but responsible in their roles as guardians of the farm. That is until they realize that mother and father will soon be home and doomsday will arrive with them. Racing to rectify their mistakes, they make a good showing, impressing the parents with their apparently excellent housekeeping and behavior. Now today, Almanzo's parents would likely be imprisoned for abuse and neglect for having the audacity to thrust such responsibility upon their children and leave them to encounter life unattended for even a few hours. Yet if Almanzo's parents tried to avoid such bondage by the state, they would likely find themselves in bondage to, to their offspring instead a place where many modern parents unwittingly find themselves. She says this parental bondage is discussed by Gail Cornwall in a recent article for Salon. While parents in America's earlier days, such as the Wilders, readily gave their children long leashes because they believed doing so would prepare them for future successes, parents today no longer give their children autonomy. Those who try to do so, Cornwall notes, are often shamed and maligned for their supposedly neglectful behavior. Now, this attitude causes problems for children. 
and increases anxiety for parents as well. Mothers especially, Cornwall says, are pressured to keep a constant eye on their children, hobbling them from doing anything else. And such a mentality, while intensified in recent years, is simply the culmination of something Christopher Lash observed over 40 years ago in the culture of narcissism. Quote, by keeping parents in a state of chronic anxiety, psychiatry thus frustrates desires that advertising can then claim to satisfy. It lays the emotional foundation for the insistence of the advertising industry that the health and safety of the young, the satisfaction of their daily nutritional requirements, their emotional and intellectual development, and their ability to compete with their peers for popularity and success all depend on consumption of vitamins, band-aids, cavity-preventing toothpaste, cereals, mouthwashes, and laxatives, end quote. And Annie Holmquist says today's hovering high-stress parenting is fostered and heightened through the materialistic urges of our culture. Because many parents have a desire to do the best they can for their children, it's easy to see why parents would fall prey to frantically hovering over their children, thereby driving up stress levels. But she says if we recognize what Lash identifies as driving such stress, perhaps we have also found the key to unlocking this prison. We should ask ourselves what our children really need and stop accepting what every advertiser and expert tell us they need. I love the examples she uses. Do they need to be fed? Absolutely. That food doesn't have to come from a Happy Meal, high-end restaurant, or even the latest organic, gluten-free, vitamin-laden substance that advertisers try to sell us on. Give children good, solid, square meals and list their help in preparing them, and they will thrive and survive. Do they need to be clothed? Yes, but those clothes can be simple, obtained at thrift stores or garage sales, and handed down to younger children. She says, unless I miss my guess, you, like me, grew up wearing hand-me-downs and were none the worse for the wear. Do our children need to grow up to be responsible adults? Of course. Yet truly responsible adults can only result from children who were gradually given greater responsibilities and allowed to fulfill them. Lastly, she says, do our children need to be well-educated? Yes. And it is perhaps in this question that we come to the root of the whole issue of what our children need most from us. So often we focus on the mental health of our children, fixating on the best schools and extracurricular activities money can buy. But in so doing, she says, we often overlook the spiritual education of our children. And it's in this area that we may be able to relieve a lot of the stress modern parents have taken upon themselves. What if we consider what Almanzo's parents did to spur their children on to adulthood like many parents of that time They raised their children with traditional values, training them to have faith in God, and live their lives in accordance with Christian principles. The children still made mistakes, but they were ready and well-equipped to face the future. Again, you'll find this in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is... Is the Brian Hyde Show.